Chapter twenty three of My Path to Atheism by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty three The Form and Manner of Making, Ordaining, and Consecrating of Bishops, Priests, and Deacons, According to the Order of the United Church of England and Ireland. If the Church of England confined herself in her ministrations to offices which had some demonstrable effect, her occupation would be gone. These ordination offices stand on a par with that of confirmation. In both the Holy Ghost is given by imposition of episcopal hands. In both no appreciable results follow the gift. The preface to these offices says, It is evident unto all men diligently reading the Holy Scripture and ancient authors, that from the Apostles' time there have been these orders of ministers in Christ's Church, bishops, priests, and deacons. The evidence of this appears doubtful, seeing that all Presbyterians acknowledge no such triple order, and regard bishops as an invention of the devil, and the pride of prelacy as a rag of the scarlet lady. The three offices before us may, to all intents and purposes, be treated as one, for they are the progressive steps of the ladder which reaches from earth to heaven, from the poor deacon curate on seventy shillings a year at the bottom, to the archbishop luxuriating on fifteen thousand shillings a year at the top. There is much of solemn farce in the opening. The archdeacon presents the candidates for ordination to the bishop, and the reverend father in God, who has had them examined, who knows all about them, and has probably dined with them the night before, gravely responds, Take heed that the persons whom ye present unto us be apt and meet for their learning and godly conversation to exercise their ministry duly to the honour of God and the edifying of his church. For the learning of some young clergyman, the less said about it the better, but those presented have at least scraped through the bishop's examination, and will not now be turned back. The question is simply a sham, and both candidates and bishop would be thoroughly astonished if the archdeacon replied that any one of them was deficient. The litany follows after this, and then the communion office, with the special collect, epistle, and gospel. After the oath of supremacy, the bishop examines the candidates for the diaconate. "'Do you trust that you are inwardly moved by the Holy Ghost to take upon you this office?' is asked of each, and each answers, "'I trust so.' This ought to be a solemn question. To be inwardly moved by the Holy Ghost is surely an important thing, and when one remembers how very little many of these young men, fresh from college, seem to think of the matter, and how one chooses the church because it is gentlemanly, and another because there is a fat living in the family, and another because he is too stupid for any other profession, we can scarcely help wondering at the workings of the Holy Spirit in the heart of man. They are also asked if they unfeignedly believe all the canonical scriptures if they really do believe them at their ordination, much change must take place in after-life, judging by the amount of scepticism among the clergy. Much of the fault lies in pledging young men of three-and-twenty to absolute belief in what they have probably studied but little. At college all their instruction is in Christian evidences, not in attacks on Christianity. They really know but little of the anti-Christian arguments, and therefore are naturally shaken when they learn them further on. Then the deacon is to read homilies in church, and promises to do so, although he never fulfils the promise, and he vows to obey his ordinary and other chief ministers of the church, following with a glad mind and will their godly admonitions. 
how well the deacons and priests keep this pledge may be seen in the daily struggles between them and their bishops, and in the necessity of passing a Public Worship Regulation Act for the easier suppression of rebellious priests. A year must intervene between the diaconate and the priesthood, and when this year has run, the youthful aspirant to the power of the keys presents himself once more before the Father in God, and the same farce of question and answer is repeated. The service runs as, in that for deacons, save the special epistle and gospel, until after the oath of supremacy, and then comes a long exhortation, wherein what strikes us most is the complete contrast between the priest in theory and the priest in practice. If it shall happen the same church, or any member thereof, to take any hurt or hindrance by reason of your negligence, ye know the greatness of the fault, and also the horrible punishment that will ensue, see that you never cease your labour, your care and diligence, until you have done all that lieth in you, according to your bounden duty, to bring all such as are or shall be committed to your charge, unto that agreement in the faith and knowledge of God, and to that ripeness and perfectness of age in Christ, that there be no place left among you either for error in religion, or for viciousness in life. Now change the scene to six weeks later, and our young priest is playing croquet and flirting meekly with his rector's daughters, oblivious of the horrible punishment he is incurring from Hodge at the public-house getting drunk unrebuked. Consider how studious ye ought to be in reading and learning the scriptures, and for this self-same cause how ye ought to forsake and set aside, as much as you may, all worldly cares and studies. Alas for the special vanities of country clergymen! This one botanizes, and that one zoologizes, and another one geologizes, and a fourth is devoted to his garden, and a fifth to his poultry, and a sixth to his farming, not to speak of those who adorn the bench of magistrates, and sternly sentence wicked poachers, and sinful old women who pick up sticks, and children who steal flowers. It may be urged that no set of men could possibly live the life sketched in this exhortation. Granted, but then why pretend that they are bound to live it, and threaten horrible punishments if they do not perform the impossible? Besides, the bishop expresses his hope that they have well considered the whole matter, and have clearly determined by God's grace you will apply yourself wholly to this one thing, and draw all your cares and studies this way. When the time comes to put the questions to the candidates, this very point forms one of them. Will you be diligent in prayers, and in reading of the Holy Scriptures, and in such studies as help to the knowledge of the same, laying aside the study of the world and the flesh? And the candidates solemnly promise to do that which they must know they have no intention of doing, one might further urge that the perpetual meddlesomeness enjoined in this office on the priest would make that individual a perfect nuisance to his parishioners if he tried to carry it into practice, and that he would probably very often find his administrations cut short with unpleasant emphasis. The consecration follows in due course. Receive the Holy Ghost for the office and work of a priest in the Church of God. Whose sins thou dost forgive, they are forgiven, and whose sins thou dost retain, they are retained and yet some people pretend that the Church of England does not sanction an absolving priesthood. If these words have any meaning, they mean that the young men now ordained have the most awful power given into their hands, that they can in very truth lock and unlock heaven, for by their absolution the forgiven sinner may enter, while through their retainment of his sins he may be shut out. 
How tremendous, then, is the authority thus given into hands so young and so untried! And surely such power is not to be wasted. Surely it is the duty of these priests to be continually urging people to seek, and continually to be giving, absolution. Why should one sinner die unshriven, when such death may be prevented by the diligence of the priest? Life would be impossible were all this really believed. What priest could live in reasonable comfort if this were true and were realised? All earthly things would sink into insignificance, and life would become a desperate struggle to save and absolve the perishing. Real belief would end its days in a lunatic asylum. The consecration of archbishop or bishop is somewhat more ceremonious, but is one in character with the preceding offices. The promise to banish and drive away all erroneous and strange doctrine contrary to God's word is one the fulfilment of which brings unfortunate bishops nowadays into much trouble in the flesh. For when a colenso comes down like a wolf on the fold, and the faithful bishop of Oxford forbids him to tear the lambs of his flock, immediately people mutter, bigoted, narrow-minded, tyranny, with sundry other unpleasant adjectives and nouns. Yet can there be no doubt that he of Oxen was only obeying his ordination vow? In truth, the present spirit of liberty is thoroughly at issue with the spirit of these offices, and the only effect of maintaining them is to create hypocrites and vow-breakers. Nor is it fair to judge too harshly those who break these foolish vows, for a man may honestly think that he can best serve his generation as clergyman, and may have a general belief in Christianity, and he may then argue that he cannot permit himself to be kept out of a wide sphere of usefulness by a few obsolete vows. The pity is that men, whose common sense is too strong to be bound by foolish promises taken in ignorance in their youth, do not join earnestly together to remove this stumbling block from before the feet of the next generation, so that if they deem their church valuable, they may preserve her by adapting her to the realities of the nineteenth instead of the sixteenth century, and may make her services something more than a farce, her ceremonies something better than a show. End of chapter 23